Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? You know how painful it is. Asseval helps your in-house team by taking tough tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia-Pacific, which includes onboarding, procurement, device management, real-time IT support, offboarding, and more. Gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place with our state-of-the-art platform. Check out Esevel, E-S-E-V-E-L.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code BRAVE for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to BRAVE. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Au, a VC, founder, and father. Mondays for no BS commentary on the latest startup news with Shri and Co, managing partner of Hustle Fund. Thursdays for in-depth interviews of changemakers across the region, sharing about the highs and lows of their lives. Join us and over 10,000 subscribers at www.bravesea.com for transcripts, analysis, and community. Hey, Kayla, really excited to have you on the show. You are one of the few folks who are really kind of like spearheading Southeast Asia's regional VC point of view, ecosystem builder, book summarizer, and proud flag bearer of the Philippines representation in Southeast Asia tech. So Thank excited you. to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I've heard about your podcast, so it's a privilege actually to be here invited. <laughs> yeah. So could you share a little bit by yourself? Sure. So I'm Kela Donhanko. I'm the director for Asia at Endeavor Catalyst, which is a rules-based fund of the nonprofit Endeavor, which is actually a leading global community of high-impact entrepreneurs worldwide. And I also co-chair the Impact Council for the Global Shapers Community, which is an initiative of the World Economic Forum. And we oversee... 400 city hubs and around 10,000 young people creating impact on the ground. And I guess my journey to get here was not your typical journey, I would say, because I actually did go to med school. I did pre-med. I went to med school at some point, dropped out. Then I went to business school. I went through a eyeglass startup and I landed in management consulting after that before landing at Endeavor. And I've been here for around five years now. So how did you drop out of medical school and somehow decide to wander into technology? So, you know how it is the Asian dream of parents to have a lawyer and a doctor? Well, I have a twin sister, so she went to law school and I went to medical school. She dropped out after one week and I dropped out after one year. And I decided maybe after a year, okay, I cannot do this for the next 10 years. So I need a career change. And because I didn't know what to do and it was not really translatable to dissect cannabis to anything else outside medical school, I went to business school and this was the most exciting field afterwards, I would say. Now you got me curious, what happened to your sister? <laughs> she actually got out of law school and she's now a climate change economist in London. 
So she's also doing great things, but just not in your traditional career path of your typical Asian. Yeah, it feels much more difficult for your parents to say, oh, I'm very proud of my children, a climate change economist. And a venture and capitalist. venture capital. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. It's two fields that likely did not exist when they were younger. So it is harder for them to explain to their friends also what we do. Could you explain a little bit more about how you go into Endeavor and what Endeavor does in Southeast Asia? So Endeavor is a nonprofit. We've been around for 25 years. We started out in Latin America with the mission to democratize entrepreneurship. You know how Silicon Valley has been a great support system for the East and West Coast founders of the U.S.? Well, back then, no one was doing that for the rest of the world, basically. So Endeavor exists to help provide access to talent, network, capital, support, data, and everything you might need that you otherwise could not have gotten if you are not creating your company in Silicon Valley. So Endeavor today is in 40 markets. We support 2,000 founders. We funded around 260 of them, of which 53 are now valued at a billion dollars, including the first unicorn of 13 countries. So we're very proud of our impact in emerging markets, and we're excited to see where else this might go. So what makes Endeavor different from all the other VCs in the ecosystem? I mean, isn't everybody by bringing capital from the West, from local family offices, as long as they're deploying checks, scouting for founders and helping them build a companies, isn't that ecosystem building? So what makes Endeavor a particularly standout flag bearer on this approach? I think what makes a difference though is it's because we're a nonprofit first. So the fund is something that we built to help our nonprofit be self-sustaining. So the nonprofit supports 2,000 founders, and we've only invested in a little bit. But the fund itself is designed to, well, if our entrepreneurs succeed, we succeed. So Endeavor Catalyst is actually a fund where we have a 50% carry, which is donated back to the nonprofit. So every time one of our founders exit, our LPs get their prorated capital back. They get 50% of the profit and 50% is donated to Endeavor to help sustain the nonprofit's mission and activities. So in a way, it's an elegant solution where we're a, well, we're basically an organization that supports entrepreneurs. And with each entrepreneur's success, exit, merger, acquisition, Endeavor also succeeds because then it also benefits from the proceeds of those exits. So we're one of the very few nonprofits actually on its way to becoming fully self-sustaining because of our well, nonprofit's business model and fund. Yeah, so it's very exciting, actually. It helps us be able to do a lot of things for love, not money. We're able to support founders, create programs and do initiatives because we can't afford to with our new source of funding compared to like other nonprofits or other entities that rely a lot on donor entities that might have other agendas. So at least for Endeavor, we're able to use the proceeds of Endeavor Catalyst to help support our mission and support more founders. Yeah. What's the synergy between the Endeavor, like I said, the nonprofit versus the fund, right? Because the fund is a little bit more straightforward, right? In terms of the mechanics, yeah. which is find great founders, invest in them, build them. And I think it's great to hear about economics, but mm -hmm. what's the synergy between the nonprofit and the fund? 
So the nonprofit, we have a very long rigorous selection process for any entrepreneur to actually become an Endeavor entrepreneur. Like to join Endeavor's network, they essentially have to meet at least 16 different people, go to at least four stages of a selection process, which culminates in a final international selection panel where the top, where six of our top 1% of mentors worldwide have to vote after three rounds of deliberations, six zero, not by one, not four two, for any entrepreneur to join the network. So each entrepreneur benefits from joining the network regardless if they're fundraising or not. So the way it's different is a lot of times when we actually invest in these companies already, it's not because of a promise of the help we can provide like other VCs, but it's also because they want to give back to Endeavor. Like for them, they've received a lot of help already from Endeavor and they want to use this fund as a way to not just stick their, well, profit bucket, but also their philanthropy bucket. So it's a way for them to give back. From our fourth fund, we have at least 138 founders put money in our last fund. So we're very proud at least that it's a good signal that a lot of our founders support Endeavor and they believe that we can do a lot of good for other founders. When we think about this, obviously, you yeah. look at the global point of view, you look at the regional point of view. Yeah. And I hate to ask this, but you've obviously seen a lot of the regional news and commentary and so forth. What do you think about Southeast Asia? <laughs> what do I think of Southeast Asia? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're excited, you're bored. Well, I am excited because I came from the Philippines and we have a very close-knit ecosystem there. And... Southeast Asia is a bigger pond for us. And what's exciting, I think, about Southeast Asia is that aside from having a young population, like fully, like most countries in Southeast Asia are finally going digital. Like a lot of things because of the pandemic have digitized. A lot of consumers have seen the value in using digital financial products. There's a lot of upside to happen in the next couple of years, like even with the looming recession globally. Like for Southeast Asia, we have strong fundamentals. We do have a young population. We do have a lot of work still to need to be done, a lot of gaps to be filled. So I think what's exciting about Southeast Asia is that tech can still do a lot of things. There's a lot of potential for tech to, well, a lot of potential for tech to succeed in traditional industries that need to still be, I would say, disrupted for lack of better. And what do you think about the Philippines specifically? You're Filipino. Yeah. Uh, you've obviously traveled around the world and now you're back in Southeast Asia mm-hmm. investing. How do you think about the Philippines? I think for the longest time, when I started out in Endeavor in 2017, the Philippines was an overlooked market. A lot of people were excited about Indonesia and disturbingly so because of its population size and potential. But the Philippines was one of those countries where we didn't have a lot of success stories of that companies succeeding and exiting for a lot of investors to look into it. But because of what's happening with some of the Series B companies where Kumu raised from General Atlantic, Grossari raised from KKR, there are a lot of interests now because people are starting to notice that we are also a considerable market. We have at least 110 million people on the ground. We're a young population where the average age is 30 which is still young compared to China, Japan, and other aging populations, and we all speak English. So there's a lot of interest now in the Philippines as a market because 
they are seeing, at least for the early stage investors in the seed and Series A stage, that people can raise further rounds, Series Bs and whatnot, for them to actually well, make a good investment in the country. So, yeah, it's very exciting. A lot of companies we've seen, like in 2017, when I first started out in the seed and early stages, are now getting the attention they deserve. And they're like really good founders, actually. Like not just foreigners and expats, but also sea turtles, like those who studied abroad or lived abroad and came back. And also some locals already starting to build companies. So it's exciting, I think, for the country, especially with all the interest that it's now coming. We're now, I think, third to Indonesia and Vietnam as a priority market for a lot of other venture capital funds. A Filipino operator shared that... Yeah. She was long or bullish on Filipinos yeah. and bearish on the Philippines market. And I thought that was a really nice way of saying it, which is that obviously opportunity is unequally distributed, but talent is equally distributed. Yeah. I was just kind of curious how you feel or react to that statement. Yeah, I am cautiously optimistic about the Philippines as a market. I know that we do have companies who have raised Series Bs like more than 10, 14, 15 in the last Two year, last year alone, I think, have raised the Series B and more so in the Series A's. We've reached milestones where we've had the first female founder raise the highest amount of Series A funding that they could achieve. We've had some Series B's which were the biggest ever in the Philippines. And it's exciting, but obviously I am cautiously optimistic because of what's happening in the market now. Like We do have a lot of good founders. We have strong fundamentals, but because of what's happening with the public markets, the private markets, including the Philippines, are affected in terms of succeeding funding. Like in the Series C range, pre-IPO, Series B range, we do lack investors in that area for all the companies who've just raised their Series B. So I'm cautiously optimistic about the country in terms of the next stage of funding, but I am still optimistic because we have strong fundamentals. Like we do have a lot of problems to be solved, a lot of traditional businesses that could use the support of digitization, AI and whatnot. So I think overall, like just after this looming period, I think we have a lot to be optimistic about still in the country. So I understand the optimism yeah. side, but I noticed you very carefully wrote cautious <laughs> optimism, right? So so tell me more about what the caution is. You talk about obviously tech market, but a tech market downturn is creating caution everywhere, right? Creating caution in Singapore, the US, Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia. Is it more so or what else is going on in your factor around here? I would not say hedging optimism, but we, because of the next level of successes that are going to happen that should help fuel more interest in the country, it's a little bit dependent if the companies that were able to raise in 2021 and 2022 are able to raise further capital. I'm just cautious that if they're unable to, then it might scare away certain investors from actually seeing the potential of the market. So it's more of just hedging the idea that if our companies are not able to raise or if a lot significant amount of them do raise down rounds, which is not far-fetched because of the valuations people raised that in 2022, 2021, actually more 2021, then we do have to just kind of like see if 
investors will still remain optimistic about the companies that are coming up in the country versus what's happening now. I would say there could be a lot of like tourist investors who are just looking at it because a lot of people are looking at it. So you want to see, make sure that the people who are looking at it will not be scared by any certain like kind of downturn that is happening in the world, the macroeconomic environment that might actually impact the sentiment for the country. But yeah, I think if we just look at what's available and all the founders, like the quality of the people building companies and the quality of the companies coming out, then there's definitely a lot to be hopeful for. <laughs> I mean, I think people are also worried mm. about the geopolitical yeah. risk of the market. Mm-hmm. And obviously the population is, like you said, smaller than Indonesia, right? Everybody's yeah. like, wow, 300 million people. Yeah. That's amazing. Singapore has like, what, 3 million folks. <laughs> As a market that you're actually serving is a bit smaller than you expect, right? So everyone's like, ah, Singapore's out. Okay, cool. And then Indonesia, 300 million. And the Philippines is like neither here nor there, right? Mm-hmm. What's your point of view on that? Compared to Indonesia and Singapore, I think we still have a long way to go in terms of, I guess, tech talent and openness and government support, but it is showing up. Like I think this administration would be a little bit more open to supporting entrepreneurs. So I think the Philippines is a couple of years behind Singapore and Indonesia. Like if I think Indonesia is a little bit behind, it's like I don't know, five to 10 years behind China, the Philippines is like maybe a couple of years behind Indonesia. So we are getting there. And I think it's, it's better for us to get in there early right now while things are still being built rather than just like wait for things to be set up because then it is a chicken and egg kind of problem. But yes, I see that we're actually a little, we're way behind Singapore and Indonesia. But I think in the next couple of years, I don't think we will reach that level of Singapore where they have like 6,000 registered startups. And Indonesia maybe has like 2,000 on pitch book. But I think we will close that gap with Indonesia significantly compared to before in terms of startup support and interest. So it's a market to watch, but it is not yet the hottest market. Ooh, you gave some mm. numbers. You said 6,000 startups in Singapore, 2,000 in Malaysia. Last I checked, no, not Malaysia, yeah. 2,000 in Indonesia. Like last I Indonesia. checked, pitch book. Like, yeah. How many Philippines? I actually did not check. <laughs> <laughs> I should know this, but you should I, will know get, this. I will get back to you, but <laughs> I don't think we'll, it's close to 2,000. I think we'll, it's we'll sub 1,000. We'll put this in the show notes as to clarify that there's clarify. a certain number. There are startups in the Philippines. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, I think people are excited about fintech, right? Yeah. I think obviously, there's the new banks that's there in the Philippines. I think also other folks are trying to build, like, like you said, B2B to C, right? So trying to work with the various... Mm-hmm. You mentioned grocery and sorry, yeah, yeah. the local provision stores and wholesalers and distributors. What's what's the thesis there? I mean, from your perspective, what's the belief structure there? What are the verticals you think that make sense within the Philippines? Actually, when I was looking at our investments in Southeast Asia in general, a lot of it last year was actually focused on fintech and smart cities, which for us was includes logistics and mobility. So we've invested in Axel, Shipper, and fintech companies like Credivo. So we do see it. And I think the Philippines is also in a similar trajectory. Like at Endeavor, we're industry agnostic, but we invest in companies that typically 
mirror what emerging markets need. And the Philippines is no different from what we're seeing in our Latin American counterparts or in Indonesia or whatnot, where there's still a lot of work to be done in fintech. And retail and consumer tech is following closely fintech because of consumer demand. So we see a lot of e-commerce enablers. And I think these are things that still have potential to grow. Like it's good for us to see that our company is taking the lead and gaining and have significant market share with strong unit economics as well. So I think in the Philippines, these types of industries will continue to thrive because there's not one consolidated dominant player yet. And there's still a lot of issues that still need to be fixed. Like we recently selected companies like Interluck into the Endeavor network, which also has a lot of intelligence for logistic companies. So we see there is still a need for these kinds of companies. And we're, I guess we're bullish that these companies would actually succeed in the Philippines. There's not a lot of red tape for these types of companies as well. So they can't operate fully functioning and whatnot. And as you think about that, what gives you hope, I guess, for the Philippines as a tech market from your perspective? I think it has good bones, like very good bone structure. <laughs> There's a lot that needs to be done. There's a lot of industries that could still be digitized, consolidated, improved upon. Like there's a lot of companies and traditional industries that could really benefit from what startups and entrepreneurs are trying to build. Like a lot of the times when entrepreneurs build in the Philippines, it's because they see a pain point. It's not just because they see something and they just want to build it out of nothing, but they actually see pain points that they want to solve. So I think I'm excited about the Philippines because we have this strong potential and there's finally a lot of good people who can address that potential. So once you have that, and plus with incoming capital to support that, then a lot of amazing things can happen. Yeah. I think one of the things that gives me hope is that the diaspora uh -huh. of Philippines is yeah. tremendous, right? It's all around the That's world. Correct. It's yeah. all around the region and obviously high literacy levels. And obviously English as a first language really makes it a fertile ground and learning steps, right? Because when I work with Filipino founders, I notice that they're watching YouTube. So they kind of clued into the Silicon Valley mindset mm. and methodology yeah. and approach. But I think they often struggle because they're building maybe out of the Philippines, right? And so the yeah. talent or the market just doesn't really have the same thing, right? I feel like the dreams and the mindset is so forward, aggressive, and but the market that they're in is like, there's a time jump. And I think there's an interesting, was it tension or dynamic? Yeah, I think them. it has significantly improved though. Like from when I entered the space around five years ago. Like five years ago, it was hard to find funding. It was hard to find founders. It was hard to find any local... Filipino who would give up their corporate job, their safety net, like it's it was still a lot scarier to become an entrepreneur five years ago than it is today. But because of like the successes of the West and how it's now more top of mind for like a lot of people, like people from our parents' generations are now finally seeing that, oh, there could be the next Google or the next Facebook coming out of the Philippines. So the mindset has shifted, the culture around it is shifting. So I think today, yes, there are issues, but there has been some improvement from five years ago. So yes, I see that there are, 
there could be a lot of things more to improve. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, we are so far away from Singapore in terms of infrastructure for all of the for all the startups to thrive. But I think the interest from the business community, from students, from other entrepreneurs from the diaspora are helping at least the country better address the issues we need to well, help entrepreneurship thrive better in the Philippines. From your experience, obviously, coaching and helping so many founders, what would you say are some unique attributes or differences that you notice with Southeast Asian founders in terms of either coaching or helping them understand? I think they're very willing to listen, actually. I think we're very familiar. We're very close-knit with our families and our communities and our tribes that people are a lot more willing to listen and to involve others and seek help than like I guess more individualistic cultures. Like it's nice to know that in Southeast Asia that we all grew up surrounded by families. Like you know how it takes a village to raise a child? It's the same if your startup is your child. It takes a village to raise your startup. So it's nice to see that entrepreneurs here are very open to feedback. They're willing to listen and they're willing to learn from not just us, but also from what they see in the West or from more developed markets that they could see that they could apply to our situation and context here in Southeast Asia. So that's a nice and beautiful aspect, actually. Any shortfalls or areas that they could improve on? You mean our founders here? I think for our founders, any shortfalls? I think I'm actually not sure. Like, I've never really considered our weaknesses so much. But I would say that there's a lot of similarities actually with our founders here, with, I guess, other emerging market founders. But I think if, if, any, if there's any shortfall, I don't think it's an inherent trait. Like, we are, there are some disadvantages to being founders who don't speak English as well or who might have problems communicating their startup and whatnot during pitching to like maybe more global funds. I don't think that's actually a problem. It's just more of like a disconnect that we still need to try to bridge. So I won't say that there are, these are shortfalls, but more of there might be some issues where our entrepreneurs are disadvantaged that we can help support them such that they are better acknowledged, they're better understood by other global investors. Just because, for example, um, if our founders here have strong support at the seed Series A stage in terms of capital, but when they start raising their Series Cs or their growth stage rounds, they will need to pitch and su find support from more global founders. And if they are inhibited by any language barriers and whatnot, then this is something that we can still help them actually, help them address these kinds of issues. So I'm not sure if I can say if there's a specific inherent shortfalls, but there's certainly some disadvantages to being a non-Western founder where investors in the West are only starting to see and decouple geography from the way they invest, but it's not there. So we need to find, well, we need to support more of our founders, I guess, into addressing the gaps that they need to address before they actually go to like other yeah, I know that's like a backhanded answer. <laughs> it's not exactly a shortfall. It's a very Miss Universe kind of reply. 
<laughs> well, I think what I would say what's true is that I think it's less about Southeast Asia shortfall, but more like a common trait of emerging market yeah. founders, right? And mm-hmm. the fact is that so much capital in middle and late stage capital mm-hmm. is fundamentally Western or, or frankly yeah. American, right? Yeah. And so I agree that I think literacy and English fluency is a mandatory, honestly, requirement in order to fundraise mm-hmm. a large yeah. amount of capital. Yeah. And that's not consistent across all our markets in Southeast Asia. And I would actually add on to say, I think that storytelling isn't really there yet in Southeast mm-hmm. Asia, right? I, don't, I think Southeast Asian founders versus, I think American founders, when I see the angel decks, I know it's like night and day, right? There's a big promise. It's like, here's a billion dollars in America, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and I, I, they have this growth goal, this ambition. And mm-hmm. it's not to say it's the right way to storytell, but I think they have a, but I think they're willing to have that goal, right? And mm-hmm. I think it's obviously Asia. I think the decks I'm seeing are very much product oriented. Like this is what we do. Yeah, they're not selling goals. the dream; they're selling the actual product. Yeah, I think that's my, that might that actually is a place where we could support them more, like help them sell the dream, help them see why this is important in Asia. Like that's another thing, actually, uh, is helping to get people understand the Asian context, like why that might be an issue. It's like, for example, why some fintech companies here exist but don't exist in the U.S. Like why we need to build certain companies to be a bridge between certain institutions, but then these issues don't exist in developed countries. So that's another thing also that probably needs to be better communicated through storytelling. Like why, why in Southeast Asia? Why is this important? Why can you 10x a business addressing this specific pain point? Right? I mean, I think that's totally true, right? That's an unfair point is that yeah, they don't double click and explain why such a big opportunity. Mm-hmm. Because for an American investor, it's like, isn't that just Walmart solved it, right? Monsanto solved it, right? But <laughs> but nobody thinks about Walmart or Monsanto as a sexy tech business in the US. Mm-hmm. But that market opportunity is still there, right? In terms of like mm-hmm. supply chain or logistics or in agri-tech. So those are the opportunities. Yeah, like um, in emerging markets, you see a lot of fintech and whatnot. But then... You see a lot of deep tech in more developed countries. It's because the companies that have the biggest potential here are actually the ones addressing still emerging market issues. So the unbanked, the fact that people don't have credit scores or credit histories. So a lot of the opportunities here have probably been addressed in a lot of other developed markets. But yeah, I think it's about just more of trying to communicate like, yes, but here in our country, this is what still needs to be solved and you can help. <laughs> Any advice they have for founders about storytelling? I know you've seen a lot of pitches and you also helped a lot of them with their pitches for full-on funding. I think they really have to focus on the why, not the what. Like, as you said, there's a lot of product decks out there, but a lot of people, a lot of investors are sold more wonder why like why are we doing this like why now why this company why this issue why should we invest in you so i think if founders could communicate better their whys then they could convince a lot more people to join them for their cause so yeah and so could you share with us a time that you personally have been brave mm-hmm. well i did i mentioned in my introduction actually that i left medical school it took me one year to actually leave, but I knew from day one that I wanted to leave. So it took me one year 
well, to develop the courage to leave. So I would say that was my bravest moment. I have a tattoo of it on my back now, like marking its significance because it took me a really long time to turn my back on basically at least a decade of thinking that I was going to be a doctor, but then realizing that I didn't want to be one, that it took a lot of courage to leave my expectations, my parents' expectations, society's expectations to embark on something new. Like you spend four years studying pre-med, you start, you do one year of medical school, and then you realize it's not for you. So what do you do? So it took a lot of courage to actually deviate from that set career path to try something else. And I've never been happier. Like I have zero regrets for leaving med school, and it just took that one resignation <laughs> to actually be brave. Could you share what the tattoo is? Oh, yeah. So the three nautical stars marks a milestone each in my life. And one of them is for leaving med school. Because nautical stars, they signify guiding sailors throughout the night when they're lost. So I have three nautical stars on my back where one of them has been, signifies me leaving med school since that's one of the things that's guiding my way now. Yeah. I have to ask what the other two are. <laughs> <laughs> you do? Okay. One of it is when I finally left to study for Barcelona, like when I actually left to study, it was another big career shift and change. And then the other one was when we created an eyeglass startup in, well, we created it in, business school. It won the regional championships in Dubai, entered an accelerator in Boston. And it was actually the pivot, the catalyst for me to start being in the tech ecosystem. So for me, it opened doors, a lot of doors, actually. It opened, it taught me a lot about how to build a company and fail at a company. So it was also for that experience. So the three nautical stars are Boston, Barcelona, and leading med school. And share more about this startup that you built, right? For Eyeglass. Uh, tell us more about what you did. We found a way to create prescription glasses for less than a dollar. And we were going to train and upskill women in impoverished communities or students to create the glasses and sell them in their communities. We managed all the way to pilot this in Nairobi, Kenya, and in the Philippines. We managed to form all the partnerships necessary. And... At the end of the day, though, it was something none of us really wanted to do. So if our heart wasn't in it, then we didn't want to push through. But it was a good lesson in creating a startup, working with different co-founders, and trying to build a company. So yeah, it was very instrumental for me. Like, okay, this didn't pan out, but then I would still like to be in the tech ecosystem. <laughs> What did you learn from the building the startup more specifically and wrapping up? I think at the time we were five co-founders and I think it was very important that all of you are aligned and what you want and that you got along well <laughs> enough to see the actual product through to the very end. And if you're not aligned with the people you start with, then it's quite difficult for you to be motivated to build because it should be a fun endeavor. It should be fun, especially in the beginning. It should be exciting. But if 
you have a lot of tension in the beginning, then it might not succeed. So that was an important lesson. <laughs> five sounds like what a student project, like you said. Is that the five, yeah? I was like, oh my gosh, like whose idea was it to have five co-founders? <laughs> like, <laughs> like I think. Like in Endeavor, we've selected a lot of companies that have one, two co-founders, but I think it was incredibly rare for us to select at least six. I mean, if there were, it was because they got along super well. But it is a very rare combination, I think, of co-founders. And as you think about this, if you could travel back in time 10 years to Keller, who's 10 years younger, yeah, what advice would you give yourself? Well, that would, 10 years ago, that would be when I... It's about to enter med school, actually, I think. I would tell her, don't do it. <laughs> I mean, it was instrumental in changing the way you think and instilling discipline in your work ethic. But I think I would tell her that it's okay to have the sunk cost of going to pre-med and whatnot if it's something you don't really want to do. Like, sunk cost should not be what defines what you decide to do for your future. All right. Thank you so much, Keller. So <laughs> I'd love to kind of like summarize the three big themes I got from this conversation. Uh, the first, thank you so much for sharing about your optimism for Southeast Asia <laughs> and your cautious optimism for the Philippines mm-hmm. in terms of your concerns about whether the last wave of companies will be able to raise the follow-on capital, mm-hmm. whether growth stage mm-hmm. investors are interested in following on, mm-hmm. about the market, about the diaspora. So a lot of interesting conversation there about mm-hmm. uh, I think the Philippines yeah. as a market talent uh, the second of course is thank you for discussing storytelling advice for founders in terms of mm-hmm. how to raise capital and articulate their why and talk about big mission and end goal rather than just a product mm-hmm. lastly thanks for sharing about your three nautical stars tattoo <laughs> ranging from med school mm-hmm. to studying in spain to obviously your startup founder and transition process mm-hmm. and i thought it was really interesting to hear your learnings from each part of it um, yeah. and advice to yourself to focus on what you want to do yeah. so well what's up for my next tattoos they're all gonna have some kind of stars in it because the theory behind it is that i will always get some star themed tattoo next because when i die i want to die a constellation so Ooh. i actually have a new tattoo from last year on my ankle there's three starfish on it which also signify different things also so Okay, well, <laughs> I want to ask, will you share? One event is actually when I hit five years at Endeavor. One event is because I just graduated from the community I was part of, the Global Shapers in the World Economic Forum. So I did six years in that community where in Manila during the pandemic, we impacted 600,000 people. When I was part of the COVID steering committee, we measured impact for, we've impacted at least 3 million people. And up to now, I'm co-chairing our impact council where we're overseeing the impact of at least, at least 5 million people impacted by people doing work on the ground. So that's the other one. And then the other one is moving to Singapore, finally leaving after being stuck there for a year in Manila. It's actually just making the new transition to like a new country. So. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on Brave. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thank you 
for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyao.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Thank you.